Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Sahane Akial's even-handed and insightful documentary, Rojek, encounters incarcerated members of the Islamic State from all over the world, as well as their wives detained in prison camps who are sharing a common dream, the establishment of a caliphate. Confronted with fundamentalist beliefs of the jihadists, the film attempts to trace the beginning, the rise and fall of the Islamic State through personal stories. These conversations are a thread along which the documentary evolves as it is intertwined with various sequences depicting current post-war Syrian Kurdistan. Uh, Just a wonderful documentary film about some very uncomfortable subjects. And these are conversations we need to have and we need to be able to look into the eyes of the people that are in this film and look into the world we live in and have a better understanding. And Rojek is a wonderful way to do that. Again, we're joined today by the director of this terrific documentary film, Sahane Akial. Sahane, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for the invitation. I've seen documentaries that are about the Islamic State, but I've never seen one that is as, and this may not be the right word, but it's the word that comes to mind, as intimate as this one is, as much as it is about being able to hear from their own mouth and from the mind of of these people what it is that they are about and what it was that they did and i i guess watching this film for me the thing was how does you as a kurdish woman get to this point where they were comfortable enough to sit down with you granted they're in a prison a, a sort of a makeshift prison but how did you get to this point with the people in this film Actually, I met a lot of um, ISIS members before even filming them. Um, maybe I met around 100 ISIS members and 50 of them accepted to be in the film. And at the end, in the editing, 15, 15 are, are in the, the film. I didn't try to anything in particular. I think it was just about being honest, um, explaining them who I am. Uh, where I'm come from, what I did as the first film, which was about the Kurdish women fighters who fought them. Obviously, they knew I was from Canada. They 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 were hearing that I was speaking French to the DOP, English to the sound person, and Kurdish and Turkish around me. And they knew my name. I was really being the most honest possible because I think camera when you start to film people and you make a film that is, you know, that uh, my aim was to understand them. So I wanted to be the most honest possible as well. I didn't do anything particular besides telling them everything that I just said. And, you know, I had like very systematic questions that I would ask to everyone. The Some of the questions were about their life before ISIS, their life, even about their childhood, their family. So I think that allows them to to talk about subject that we all can uh, recognize ourselves. You know, when they talk about the love that they have for their parents, for their kids, it's human and it's feelings that we can all understand. So I think that's 
helped in a way to humanize them or at least see the human side of those people? I, I love the way the film starts. It's this, I assume, a drone hovering over a particular part of, I assume it's Syria, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong about that. And you see this, uh, people going about their business, the, their day, if you will. But it's also hard not to see the sort of the barren nature of the land. Um, and as we, and throughout the film, you take us to these places that kind of take us out of the sense of the interviews, being in the room with these people. So we get something from outside of the of the place where you're doing the, doing the interviews, and it creates a context that I I really appreciate about the film that uh, you have to walk this fine line. You have to be able to put. I feel like you have to be able to put us in a place so that we have we get to know these people in some manner of speaking, but also to understand where they're from and and to give us a wider perspective on their lives. I really thought that was an important part of the film, whatever extent you want to talk about that. I think it's what you're saying is really linked to the structure of how I imagined the film being. All the interviews that I had with the members of ISIS, they were kind of the skeleton of what I wanted to show afterwards. In the sense of, for example, if someone is uh, talking about the fact that he was involved in the production of oil and selling oil in different countries, then I really tried to find a refinery uh, in Syria and how it is now after the war. Who is controlling it? Is there illegal refinery? Is there a refinery that belongs to the government? So it's yeah. whatever they are talking about. I really I tried to see it how it is today, but also I try to make sure that the world of interviews doesn't interfere with the outside world. That's why there is um, the cuts are very sharp. Uh, there is no voiceover on Syria, on the image of Syria, because Syria belongs to the Syrian and not to ISIS. As I said, my interview were really my skeleton. If they are telling me about, let's say, how they pass it's that easily in a border from Turkey to Syria, then I try to see how the border look like even inside of Syria without border be between Syria and Turkey. But inside of Syria, there is many, many checkpoints and different inside and outside of the towns. And so I try to film that. I was always referring to whatever they, would, they were telling me. And also I, I studied cinema and I did a master about how the documentary is actually a common creation. I think I applied every theoretical thing that I learned in this film. For example, in, in I think the conversation that I'm having with, with those people are, even if I had like my questions already, it would also be mm, something that we would create in the moment because there is no way that I could imagine what they would tell me. You know, the answers are... Um, very new to me. There was a lot of information um, because I was also trying to understand the mindset, understand how it was structured, how what was the rules. So I was learning a lot while doing this film. Yeah, yeah, we learned a lot about the infrastructure in the administration of the so-called Islamic State or the Caliphate, 
And another thing, and you mentioned it just a second ago, and that is there was at the time of the, even when the U.S. invaded Iraq and then in the in the chaos that ensued, there was a sense of what the priorities of the society were, which obviously was survival for the people who were experiencing all of the, the, the horror of war on wherever it was coming from. But that the one constant was oil production, mm-hmm. which I found to be, I, I understand it is a, a means to survival to be able to sell the, the oil and the, and the refined gas. But it just reminded me of, in some manner of speaking, why there is so much chaos in this region of the world is because in some ways because of oil and i'm i'm glad it at least was introduced into the conversation here and if that's not, if i'm overstating that mm-hmm. please please let me know no no i think you're you're right but um also there is much more to that than oil um there is also the fact that you know turkey let in a lot of isis members to go and fight in in syria because uh they see kurds there as their biggest enemies so it's a politic of the you know the enemy of my enemy are my friends they want to make sure also they they don't create a, a government a, a region that is autonomous just beside of their country there is oil for sure because you know even it was it was a very i never imagined oil that could come directly from the soil sometimes they were walking on the field and you know there was this like big black substance that was just literally coming from the ground and it was everywhere it was very fascinating to see that it's almost everywhere there were oil and for sure that is a one of the biggest problem of the middle east and especially in, in that region uh, everyone wants of a part of it i'm sorry to interrupt but I, I you're absolutely right what i what my perspective was in bringing oil into the conversation was the outside world's involvement in the middle east what you're describing i think is equally if not more important it's the internal dynamics of that region Syria, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, the different sort of uh, cultural, religious uh, cross currents that are occurring. And to your point, and um, is that as you we've talked about before our, we started our conversation, forty million Kurds, the largest collection of people in the world without a state, mm-hmm. is in so many ways, in so much of what I saw in the film, is the elephant in the room for this film. Mm-hmm. And true, and those Kurds are also in charge of the most dangerous uh, terrorists of this world. Yeah. That is also something that not a lot of people know because when the when ISIS attacked the region, the Iraqi army ran away, the Syrian army ran away, and the people in the majority who stand against ISIS were Kurds. And at the end of the war, when ISIS realize that they are losing the war, they all run towards Kurds also because they knew they would be hanged by Iraqi army and they would be hanged by Syrian government. So these people who doesn't have a country, doesn't have a, a, a region, actually they have one small part of uh, in the north of Iraq, an autonomous region. And because they fight so courageously ISIS, they also could establish a kind of a, a region for themselves in, in Syria. And now they are 
obviously not an official government, but they are keeping us safe from all those terrorists. Uh, as you mentioned, the prisons are makeshift prisons. And just to give you an, an idea of how big it is, uh, one of the camp that we we filmed in, and it, it's a camp, detention camp where the, the women and the kids are, one of them had 70,000 people in it. God. So it's a small town. It's it's that was one of the camp, and they had like three camps like that, and they they have over twenty jails for ISIS members. We was we visit uh, three of them. The 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 one that had the major ISIS member in it. Kurds in in Syria, they are probably around two three million maximum. Uh, so two three million people taking care of those ISIS. Uh, member w- which are way too too many for for them and well, uh, exceedingly have... dangerous right these are people uh, will, yeah, i'm sorry these are people that were in all likelihood a part of one of the most violent i don't want to call it a regime i want to uh whatever it was um mm-hmm. that we've ever seen oh yeah uh did the they were killing people uh, alive, burning them, beheading them, putting them in cage, putting water, uh, putting all those videos online. Uh, it was a very barbaric way of fighting against. Uh, and it was a very new kind of war because it's people from all around all around the world came to one region to fight the people from that region and to establish an Islamic State. So it's a really a new kind of war. Usually it's one nation against another one, one country and against another one, or three countries against each other. But in this case, it was thousands of people who came from every country that you can imagine to the region. Curious how the Kurds are able to to maintain a civil society, and in particular, this prison where the prisons where these uh, former members of the ISIS and Al Qaeda and the rest of it, how do they manage to govern, maintain some semblance of civil society? How are they doing that? With a little bit of help, but very few. For example, the Americans trained for a while the Kurds, especially the uh, anti-terrorist unit, which were kind of a SWAT, let's say, um, troop where they could go and uh, arrest slipper cells. But they they really don't have much help. And they have this dream of establishing a democratic society and a feminist society and an ecologist society in the Middle East, where also the extremists is living so there is there's extremist fundamentalists and then there is this revolutionary people who wants to establish this ideal society it's fascinating to see that in the same place in the same region so they they really don't have much help you know as soon as Assad attacked them or Turkey attacked them they are leaving the jails and they are just going and securing their borders and a lot of ISIS members just ran away from the prisons. And also the, the women who are in detention camp where their kids, they are also brainwashing their kids who would grow up and be the terrorists of tomorrow. So it's kind of a ticking bomb, you know, because we think the territorial war, it's over, but certainly the ideological war, it's not. I, wanna, I really want to make this point because in my estimation, 
the United States betrayed the Kurds uh, in very significant ways and walked away from them in a very, some very, very critical points in this war against terrorism. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the United States ha has uh, ever really either made amends or even acknowledged what has happened. And the Kurds, as, I, as you're stating, are in many ways, culturally, politically, in terms of an open society, a society that's seeking a better life for all men, women, and children, these these are the people that we are the closest to in terms of a governing philosophy, a society that is, is open to all. What we've done here in the United States to the Kurds is, is uh, unconscionable. So mm -hmm. that's just my, I'm just speaking my opinion on that. But uh, uh, the problem is uh, Turkey sees Kurds as their biggest enemy because they're so afraid that they would establish their own autonomous region and take a part of Turkey because most of the Kurds are from uh, Turkey. Uh, there is obviously in, in Iran, Iraq, and Syria, but uh, you know, more than 20 millions are in Turkey. And Turkey is part of NATO. So and now the European Union. Yeah. The American government doesn't have much choice because it's uh, it's his allies. So he's always, the government is always trying to do things without being official with Kurds. But as soon as Turkey point out like, oh, you're doing, you know, uh, you're helping them, you're training them, they have to redraw. And it's always being a ping pong game kind of thing. It's happening for over like years and years. It's really a, a hard situation for, for Kurds um, over there. And they did so much for us, you know, they, they died by thousands by just fighting ISIS. Uh, so they need help and we should help them to keep us safe and away from those terrorists. I just want to remind our listeners, we're talking with the director of what I consider to be one of the best documentaries I've seen all year. And that's um, the film is called Rojek. And we're speaking with Zahane Akial, and she is, as I mentioned, you are, um, you're by heritage, ancestry, Kurdish, and we see Kurdish women, and I've seen other documentaries about the the, the effectiveness of Kurdish women as fighters, as fighting um, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the rest of the uh, uh, religious terrorists of the region. And... Um, it's remarkable. I don't know what else to say, just except that it is a remarkable um, determination on the part of the of uh, the people of this region of the world to make sure that their lives are not brutalized by the this this sickness that it, that hap has happened in this region of the world. The filmmaking here is outstanding. I love the sound, the sound design you use in in this film, the use of sound. Uh, I love the way that the pace of the film, the when these interviews are full, full screen of the people you're talking to, there mm -hmm. is a directness to your film that I think is so powerful. The directness of their interviews, the directness of the, what they say, the the range of responses that you get from the most hardcore people who still believe what they believe. Congratulations on the way that you're able to present what I consider to be a full spectrum of uh, of interviews. Was there something about the the people that you spoke with that, and it's hard to say because there's so many different interviews. But was there a 
was there something about, you know, I don't know if you can pick out one or two of the interviews that you felt are illuminating about what we should know about people who are caught up in ISIS? Mm-hmm. I think that um, that's a very good question. And and one of the things that really surprised me, and I didn't know, because actually when I started to make this film, I even didn't know that it would be uh, about uh, ISIS members who are detained in jail. And while I was doing the film, I was learning so much. And one of the things that I didn't realize, even though I read a lot about that war and what was what happened in, in the region, is that a lot of Iraqi and, and Syrian young people joined ISIS because it was an opportunity for them to, to live a better life. And they were not that brainwashed. It was just about surviving. And they were not educated. Uh, they didn't have money. And suddenly there was this group of people who come to them and say, you would have wives, you would have money, you would have car, you would have guns, and you are 15, 16 years old, not educated. It's it, it's an easy decision to make, you know, as a, as a Syrian or as, as a Iraqi. I realized that um, it's not the majority, but there is a lot of them like that, that join uh, ISIS for this reason. And most of the people who are foreigners, they were the most hardcore believer of this caliphate. Uh, so I, I I can say that was the, the the thing that I learned while doing this film. I know you've done other work since this film, and you're in your life as an artist, not only as a filmmaker but also as an author. Let's talk about some of the other work that you've done outside of this film. Um, so for years, I'm taking pictures of a woman fighters who fight ISIS in um, uh, film format, medium film format. Actually, I'm almost done of uh, preparing a book, a picture book, about all my work for over 10 years. So if there is any editor listening to the podcast and would be interested, this is coming up. And I'm also, I just finished preparing an exhibition with the pictures that I took uh, from the women who fight ISIS, but this time in, in only in Syria. So this exhibition is also ready. Obviously, I'm also continuing and doing films and, um, you know, I'm producing films as well. I have two other projects coming. And one other thing about Rojek is that it is a, obviously, the documentary film that it is, and it is eligible to be considered for best documentary for the Academy Award consideration. But it's also another category that uh, um, let's talk about the other possible uh, nomination route for for Rojek. Is the it's representing Canada in the best international feature film category? Congratulations! I mean that is a, that is a, seems like a, an acknowledgement, uh, a huge acknowledgement of the of the power of this work. So so not in addition to being a considered for a documentary for best documentary, but also for best international feature at this year's Academy Awards. Well, congratulations. Thank you, Mike. Again, the film is called Rojek, and we've been speaking with the director of this documentary film, and that would be Zahane Akial. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. 
Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.